Not one. Not two. See, we got three, four. This was just yesterday. Five, six, seven, eight. This one was my favorite. Oh, no, it wasn't this one. There was another one that like made Monty Mason to a race car driver or something. I don't know. Nine different uh, mailers and then two letters, exactly the same letter, addressed to the same person, same address. Anyways, all right, the season is upon us. So Romans 13 is where we are at as we continue on in our Living in Two Kingdoms series. Um, one of my first memories as a child is watching the show ALF. If you go in my office, my bottom bookshelf, if you look, you will actually see an ALF stuffed animal that I've owned since 1987. It has been washed and cleaned by my mother multiple times. If you don't know who ALF is, which I'm pretty sure anybody who is like under the age of 35 has no clue what I'm talking about right now, maybe even under the age of like 38, I think I may have just snuck in as an older millennial. If you don't know who ALF is, he was an alien on a sitcom. He was from the planet Melmac. He crashed into Earth and he started living with an Earth family, the Tanners, the original Tanner family of the sitcom world. And throughout the series, Alf, whose name stands for Alien Life Form, A-L-F, Alf, gets into all sorts of hijinks because his culture clashes with the culture of Earth, of the world that he lives in. He's not from Earth, right? He's from Melmac. He's Melmacian. He's, he's an alien. And yet, he is living on this globe. He is a resident of Earth. And so, Alf is a resident alien. And as silly as all of it may sound, and as silly as that show may be, it's not hard to make the connection to the Christian life. We are not aliens who have crashed into this world. We are aliens who have been called out of this world. The good grace of God has plucked us up and transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And so when our Lord prays for us in John 17, 16, he says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We're not of the world. We are not of the common kingdom. Now last week we talked all about the common kingdom. Here in the common kingdom of man, God being a merciful God and a kind God allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. There is a common grace that he extends to all of his image bearers. And one of the glorious ways that he shows his common grace toward the common kingdom of man is putting the state government in place after the flood in Genesis 9. And what we saw last week is that the state is there to preserve society and to punish evil. To provide a way for a peaceful and quiet life. The sword of the magistrate is a refraining, a restraining force that is given to humanity by God so that we do not destroy ourselves, not rip ourselves apart. And we are subject to this authority because we recognize it's been put in place by God. So as Christians, we are submissive to it. And yet, we see the Bible speak of another type of authority. We see the Bible speak of another kingdom. The redemptive kingdom of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, then you are, this morning, a citizen of that kingdom. And yet, you live here as a resident alien in the common kingdom of man. This is not your home. Zion is your home. The new Jerusalem is your destination. And yet, on Tuesday, you will go and you will vote on a Senate seat for the temporal state of Virginia. And so while we have been called out of the world, as opposed to crashing into the world, we are like Alf in the sense that we are resident aliens. We are exiles. We are sojourners. Zion's our home, and yet we vote in state senate elections. And as resident aliens, as exiles and sojourners, it can be hard for us to understand how we relate to the authority of the state. And I believe Romans 13, 5 through 7 will help us with that this morning. We're going to go ahead and read the first four verses from last week just to, uh, just to have the context. And so I'm going to read for us Romans 13, 1 through 7. And if you would, let's stand together just in honor of the Word of God as we read the text that's going to be preached today. Romans 13, starting in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good." But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Father God, please help me to preach your word this morning. Please help us all to hear your word. I pray, Father, that the hindrances that typically can get in the way, everything from thinking about what we got to do this week to what we did yesterday to what we're going to eat at lunch to the complex anxieties that we may have carried in this week, Lord. I pray that you would remove hindrances out of the way so that there would be nothing that could get in the way, God, of your word doing work in your people. I pray it would till hearts up, Lord, and I pray that it would produce good fruit in your people. And I pray it would also, God, um, bring forth the fruit of faith from those that do not believe. I, I know that, uh, Lord, that, that faith comes from hearing the word. So I pray that this morning uh, there would be people who hear the word and become brothers and sisters, become children of God because of the preached word. And so, Lord, use your word in, in the power of your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Verse 5 begins with a repeated emphasis on subjection in terms of our relationship to the state as Christians. So in light of the fact that the magistrate, which is the word that the 1689 London Baptist Confession uses to talk about the, the state or to talk about the government, the magistrate is a servant of God. And in light of that fact, we have to submit to the governing authorities, 
And that's not just to escape God's wrath coming at us through the sword, but it's also that we would keep our conscience clean before God. Meaning, I don't just avoid driving recklessly because I don't want a ticket, and I don't want the consequences. I avoid it because it is dishonoring to God to be rebellious toward the governing authority that he has put in place. I have, I've never in my life gotten a speeding ticket. I've gotten tickets, okay, for reckless driving because I fell asleep at the wheel and got in a car wreck. That happened to me twice when I was in my early, early 20s. It's been a long time, don't worry. But I've never gotten a speeding ticket until recently we got a letter in the mail. I had gone up to see the Washington Commanders play the uh, Arizona Cardinals back when the season still had a modicum of hope. And I, I went up there, opening day, and, and we get this letter in the mail a couple weeks later, and they have me, a picture of me, on a, on, a, on a ramp, you know, getting off the interstate, going apparently like 14 miles an hour over the speed limit, and I got my first speeding ticket. And I couldn't argue with it. There I was, being rebellious toward the state in a photo, and there was nothing that I could say. Caught dead to rights. Right? It, it hurt my conscience. In my conscience, I'm like, boy, look at me. Look at how guilty I am on that on-ramp, you know? We don't just avoid driving recklessly because we don't want the ticket and we don't want the consequences. There's the guilt that comes with knowing we are lawbreakers. We don't just avoid stealing because we don't want to go to jail. We avoid stealing because it dishonors God and his law who says, don't steal. The God who says, I am preserving society by making theft an action that's universally outlawed in every form of human society that has property. So I'm, I'm going to preserve society by making this just a universally wrong thing. So I avoid stealing not because I don't want to go to jail, but because I honor the God who says that this is not good for my image bearers. I'm going to keep my conscience clean before him. Verse 5 is about the heart in all of this. You don't just externally conform to the laws of society because you don't want to get in trouble. As a Christian, you know God has put the state into place, therefore I seek to be subject to the authority of the state and to the laws of the state because I want to honor God. Which means my civic obedience, my subjection to governing authorities is actually an act of worship. It is a way that I bow my heart before the Lord and I say, you are the one that is in control. I'm not in control. I don't decide how fast I go down the road when I drive. You've decided that through the magistrate. Then we get a very practical example from Paul about paying taxes. The reason we pay taxes is because the authorities are ministers of God attending to the matter of preserving society and providing us with a peaceful and quiet life. And when you pay your taxes to them, Paul says, you're actually paying to them what you owe. Now, brothers and sisters, this is one of those times where you've got to let the Bible say what the Bible says. I know that for those of us who may be of a libertarian persuasion or of a conservative political persuasion, the phrase taxation is theft is quite popular. It's not with Paul. He is saying these taxes you render to the state are a debt that you owe to the authorities that God has put in place. He doesn't view taxes as a necessary evil, but as a moral obligation. This is how the scriptures speak about our taxes. The expectation is that you would see it this way as well. 
In the same way that the civil magistrate has an obligation to wield the sword justly and be accountable to God, the Christian has an obligation to pay their taxes to that magistrate. And if you struggle with this, thankfully, we have a passage where Jesus speaks right to it. Mark 12, And they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. He's not a man pleaser. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They're just flattering Jesus. They don't really think these things about Jesus. They're just flattering Jesus. It's true. It's true about him, but they're just paying him lip service. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus was being set up in a trap here. The Pharisees want to catch Jesus. They want to stump him with a question. They want to stir up strife against him. So they're going to ask him this question about paying taxes to the emperor. If he says, you pay those taxes, well, then he'll lose credit with the people. But if he says, no, 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 don't pay the taxes, well, then they can go to Rome and say, this guy's an insurrectionist. You need to put him to death. So they think they've got him cornered, and they approach him with this gross flattery They ask their question, is it lawful, according to the law of Moses, that's what they mean, is it it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Can we obey Moses and pay the taxes to the emperor? Can we honor God and honor Caesar? That's the question being posed. And it's tricky. It's particularly tricky because of the Roman head tax. Jewish people had to pay the Roman head tax just to live and breathe the air in the land that they very much believed was theirs in the first place. And that is the tax that's being talked about here. And they hated this tax. And so that that adds a bit of tension into the question. The cost of the tax was a day's wage, a day of the the work of, of, of your back, right? A day of you fighting against the thorny ground. You gotta give it up to Caesar just to live and breathe in the land that's Abraham's in the first place. They didn't like that. When they bring Jesus a coin in Mark 12, 16, they're bringing him a day's wage, a denarius. That coin would have read on one side, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus, meaning the coin literally depicts Caesar as God, as the son of God. It's the way we talk about Jesus. It's blasphemous. It it, it feels gross coming out of your mouth as a Christian. To even say, son of divine Augustus, or even talk about Caesar as a son of a god, it's just disgusting. It's blasphemous. On the other side of the coin, Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest, again, blasphemy. Right? Son of God, high priest, that's how we talk about our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's written about the emperor on the coin. And yet, Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Apodidomi is the Greek word, not didomi. 
Didomi is the term that was typically used for paying taxes, but Jesus actually uses the term apodidomi, and this is like him saying, repay to Caesar. When he's saying, render to Caesar, it's like he's saying, repay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So again, you see this idea of us morally obligated to pay these taxes that we owe to the state, even using coins minted with blasphemous phrases. Even when the emperor is persecuting our brothers and sisters, you pay your taxes. Paul writes this to people who are experiencing persecution, and he says to them, pay your taxes. Caesar gives you roads, Caesar gives you water, gives you infrastructure, restrains evil with the sword, he's owed his taxes. And it's all right in line with Paul's teaching in Romans 13 here, everything that Jesus is saying in Mark 12. But it's not all that Jesus says. He does not simply say, render to Caesar or repay Caesar. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. So you might pay your taxes to Caesar, but no matter how much Caesar claims otherwise, in coin or in conversation, we don't bow to Caesar as Lord. God alone is the recipient of our worship. In Romans 12, Paul calls on believers to respond to all of the theology, all the great gospel theology he lays down in the first 11 chapters. He calls on believers to respond to that theology by rendering their lives to God as a living sacrifice. And so Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a what? A living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Caesar does not get your body as a living sacrifice. Caesar does not get your spiritual worship. None of it. In fact, our subjection to Caesar is driven really just by this desire to worship the Lord. I want to be a living sacrifice before the Lord. I know he has put the governing authorities in place. Therefore, as an act of worship to him, I will be subject to those governing authorities. And so Jesus in Mark 12 is saying, God has put Caesar in place to rule the common kingdom of man. Repay to Caesar what you owe him, but your spiritual worship belongs to God if you are redeemed. If you are a member of his redemptive kingdom, you give the state the tax revenue you owe them, but you reserve your reverence for the Lord who has redeemed you. It goes back to what we learned last week. In Genesis 9, after the flood, God institutes human government as this imperfect restraining agent for everybody who lives in the common kingdom of man. And since government does that, since it restrains evil, provides a pathway to a peaceful and quiet life, you pay your taxes like everybody else who lives in the common kingdom of man. And yet, when we see Pilate interrogating Jesus before his crucifixion, what does Jesus say to Pilate? When he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom 
is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. He repeats it. So what kingdom is Jesus talking about here? It can't be the common kingdom of man. Because the common kingdom of man is very much a part of this world. Jesus is standing there talking to a Roman governor in the physical world. In the common kingdom of man, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That's this world. That's this earth that unbelievers and believers live in all together. So then Jesus must be talking about a different kingdom. The kingdom he speaks of in Mark 1 as he announces his ministry. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's not talking about the common kingdom of man there. He's talking about the redemptive kingdom of God that you enter into by faith. So we know then that God rules over not just one, but two kingdoms. The common kingdom of man, the redemptive kingdom of the beloved son. And that's point number one this morning. God rules over the common kingdom of man and the redemptive kingdom of the Son. This is why Jesus can say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. Give your taxes to the one that God has put in place to govern the the, uh, common kingdom. That's great. But you give your worship to the one that God has put in place to govern the redemptive kingdom. We know the human institution of government finds its roots in Genesis 9, but where do we find the establishment of the redemptive kingdom? Well, first of all, you remember that God made a covenant of works with Adam. Adam was to be a king priest, right? Work and keep the garden and have dominion over creation. But Adam failed. He disobeyed. He broke covenant with God, and when he did that, sin's curse took effect in the world. One day, a perfect king priest will come and will rule the world again. In fact, the coming of that king priest is promised when a covenant of grace is established in Genesis 3, because even in the midst of the curse that sin brings about, God says there's going to be one that comes from Eve's line who will step on the head of the serpent and deliver the fatal blow. Until that king priest returns and until he comes and he rules the world again, the imperfect government that we have, that God has put in place, restrains evil, provides a level of peace. But in Genesis 15, God calls Abraham out of the common kingdom of man and into the redemptive kingdom of God as a worshiper. And this is important. Genesis 15, verses 5 through 7. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, Abram is still a member of the common kingdom of man. He exists in society. That's evident in the fact that he rescues Lot from Sodom before its destruction. He's still living in the world. His family is still impacted by the sin that is around them in the world. And yet, he is a covenant worshiper who believes the promises of God and his faith is credited to him as righteousness. He is a pilgrim 
in a land that is not his home. Hebrews 11 says that Abram's got his eyes on a city who is, is designed and, and built by the Lord God. By faith, Abram, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so, Abram and his family are covenant worshipers who believe God's promise and it is credited to them as righteousness. Then you get to Genesis 17, you see covenant made between God and Abraham again, and this is where circumcision is established. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then, I don't think we have this on the screens, but it continues on in verses 9 through 11. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your genera- their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's a crucial passage for us understanding the redemptive kingdom. First of all, circumcision is setting God's people apart from the rest of the world. He's distinguishing them. He's making them distinct. They are citizens of his kingdom. They still belong to the common kingdom of man. They still live out there with the Philistines, right, and all the other ites that are mentioned at the beginning of Deuteronomy 7. They're still there in the midst of all the other people groups, but they bear the seal of the redemptive kingdom of God. Secondly, it's important in Genesis 17 that God promises kings will come from Abraham, which lays the foundation for the Lord Jesus, the second Adam, the perfect king priest, to come and rule the nations with a rod of iron. David would come from the covenant family of Abraham, and David would have a promise from God that a king will sit on his line, uh, from his line, will sit on the throne forever, and that is King Jesus. And so when that happens, when, when Jesus, the second Adam, is born, Satan tries to destroy him. He tries to destroy him through murderous Herod. He tries to destroy him in the wilderness temptations. He tries to destroy him through the betrayal of Judas. He tries to destroy him through the cross. Just as he destroyed the first Adam, the dragon tries to destroy the second Adam. But unlike the first Adam, the second Adam is not destroyed. And not only is he not destroyed, but he accomplishes the destruction of the deceiver by succeeding where Adam failed. Jesus dies on the cross, he offers himself up as an atoning sacrifice, and in doing that, he is our great high priest. 
And then he resurrects. He receives the name above all names. And in doing that, he is the Lord of Lords. So the first Adam is a king priest who failed. But Christ, the second Adam, he is the Lord of Lords. He is a king. And he is the high priest. He's a priest. He's the king priest who kept covenant. And he obtained the right to the nations. And he obtained the right to intercede for his people in the temple of God forever, which is exactly what he will do. Those who turn from their sin and put their trust in the king priest who has come from Abraham's line have their faith credited to them as righteousness, just like Abraham. And now the first Adam is no longer their representative before God. Now it is the second Adam, Jesus, the king priest whom the Spirit of God has regenerated them to love and obey as citizens of the kingdom. So church, you and I are redemptive kingdom people. We exist in the common kingdom of man. You got an address here. You get mailers here, like we've seen. You pay bills, you vote, you have kids, you get jobs. But we have been called out into the redemptive kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom that is not of this world. The second Adam's kingdom. This is what Colossians 1 tells us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so this is what theologians call a two-kingdom reality. There is the common kingdom of man, and in it you have government, industry, infrastructure, Hollywood, news, culture, social media, education, politics, all of that. And there is the redemptive kingdom of the second Adam. Dr. Scott Daniels' book, Citizens and Exiles, has been really helpful to me in preparing for this message. And in it, he defines the redemptive kingdom in this way. He says, God's specific rule over his redeemed people. The redemptive kingdom includes only those who submit to the king and involves a redemptive relationship with God. The common kingdom involves temporal, physical matters. The redemptive kingdom involves spiritual matters. One day when Jesus returns, he will unite these two kingdoms again. God's perfect design will be realized on the new earth when Jesus rules as the king and intercedes for us as the priest forever. But until then, you and I represent the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man as kingdom ambassadors. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Our local churches are kingdom outposts. They're embassies. And until the Lord Jesus returns, we advance kingdom purposes here on earth and we grow the kingdom soul by soul until all the king's citizens come into the gates by faith. Number two this morning, we represent the redemptive kingdom of God in the common kingdom of man. We represent the redemptive kingdom of God in the common kingdom of man. Church, we are not Gnostics. Gnostics were an, uh, a first century sect. It was heretical. It was, they were false teachers. They taught a false gospel and they separated the physical from the spiritual all the time. Everything physical is bad. Everything spiritual is good. That's not us. We recognize that we belong to Jesus' kingdom, which is not of this world, and yet at the same time, we know we live and move and breathe here in society, and we're ordained by God to do that. 
And Romans 13 is well aware of it. In fact, Romans 13 is Paul getting right down into all of the veins that the blood of theology flow through. He's getting into all the practical implications of life. And he's saying to the church, you belong to the same redemptive kingdom of Abraham. By faith, you're in it. But while you exist as a living sacrifice in the common kingdom of man, you've got to live in subjection to the authorities that God has put in place. So, your living sacrifice, pay your taxes. Your living sacrifice, be a good citizen. Taxes to whom they are owed, revenue to whom it is owed, respect to whom it is owed, honor to whom it is owed. As those who are representing the redemptive kingdom, bearing the, the, the mark of the Redeemer, right? His Spirit has, has, uh, has dwelt in us, and so uh, the Spirit of God is like a seal upon our hearts. We take the Lord's Supper, that sets us apart. We have all these ways we are distinct. So as we are distinct in the common kingdom, we should be the best citizens. Nobody should out-citizen us. We understand the state is there to restrain evil. We understand the state is there to provide a level of peace. We understand that all this has been put in place by God because he is gracious toward his creation, even those who do not worship him. We know that rulers are a terror to bad and not a terror to good. All that's great for us. Because we love the God that put the state in place and we love to do good. God calls us to not grow weary in doing good. And so we pay our taxes and we pay our debts and we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We give respect. We give honor. I love that Paul mentions that meaning. You don't just grit your teeth and pay your coin. Here it is every April. Take it, IRS. I hope you don't like it. No. You respect the magistrate for the evil they restrain and the peace they provide. This is why, as a Christian, I have no problem honoring our military and saying thank you for our service or honoring our law enforcement or going to a baseball game and standing out of respect for the flag or if if the President of the United States was to come out and throw the first pitch, might stand for him as well. No problem doing that as a Christian. I'm free to render to Caesar. Next week, verses 8 through 10 will allow us to press further in on all of this. There's much more we could say about the good we do in this world as kingdom representatives. And as we talk about the second table of the law in verses 8 through 10, we'll have the opportunity to do that. So I'm going to press pause there. Talk more about how to be good citizens next week. For the final bit of our time this morning, though, I I just want to clarify What is the relationship? In light of this understanding of the common kingdom of man and the redemptive kingdom of God, what is the relationship between the church and the state? We know that the church universal expresses herself in local churches, right? Kingdom outposts like Seaford Baptist Church or Pocosin Baptist Church or Christ Fellowship Church Williamsburg. But what's awkward is when these kingdom outposts exist in the common kingdom ruled by the magistrate. What do we do with that? Do they have authority over us? Certainly a question that was getting asked during COVID. Certainly a question you might be interested in. 
It's a question that was being asked at the genesis of our nation. Not far from where I grew up in 1773, there was a trial for a Baptist preacher named John Weatherford. George Whitfield's open-air preaching had turned the colonies upside down. And the Baptists, they had been raised by Congregationalist parents up in Massachusetts, and they start migrating down south, and they were fairly radical folks, refusing to baptize their children, saying that once you turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus, you're equal to everybody in the church. So, so slaves and masters in the church, equal. Many of them were preaching out in the open they gather up anywhere from 50 to 200 people at a time and the problem is that Virginia was not like Massachusetts it was not a place for congregationalists to uh to to sow their seeds and to enjoy the fruits it was an Anglican stronghold Virginia was a bastion for the church of England even after it had become a commonwealth And if you did not have a license to preach, you could not hold worship services in the commonwealth. To get a license, you had to go down to the capital. You had to take an oral exam to prove you knew theology. You had to to agree with all but six tenets of the Anglican faith. You could pick whichever six you didn't want to agree with. So I guess if you didn't think Christ was God, it's just one of the six. Once you were approved, you got the license, no money changed hands. Presbyterians and Methodists were happy to play by the rules, but... Baptist, being the grandchildren of the Puritans, said, afraid not. And so the magistrate of Chesterville County was Archibald Carey, and he was a hard man, uh, hard-nosed man. He said, we enforce the law around here, and so he started arresting the Baptists. And in 1773, he arrested John Weatherford. And what he was told is the state has authority over the church. Weatherford, you can't preach. He wasn't deterred. He pulled himself up to the bars of the jail window in Chesterfield County, and he preached to his congregation as they gathered outside. And so his persecutors and his haters took these little knives, and they ran up, and they would cut his knuckles as he gripped the bars, and he wouldn't let go. And so bloody knuckles and all, Weatherford kept preaching. Carrie, not being one for disorder, took a a, a wooden wall and he built it in between the congregation and the jail window. State rules the church. You're not going to preach to these people. What did he do? Well, he just kept preaching to the wall. And the congregation would take a flag and they would lift it up over the wall so he would know they were on the other side. Soon the congregation started to climb and sit on top of the wall and listen. So Weatherford, or, uh, uh, Archibald Carey put a sheet of glass on top of the wall. So they couldn't do that. Weatherford kept preaching, so he had a drummer come and sit next to the window and just bang on the snare drum, trying to drown him out. After months, Weatherford was let out because an anonymous friend paid his bond. He was leaving a pub with that friend some years later, and Patrick Henry looked and said, John, do you ever know who paid your bond all those years ago? He said, never. He said, it was me. Weatherford's case became a very important moment in the early fight for religious freedom in our nation. And it's a, he, he is a man that, as Baptists and as Americans, we should all feel a debt to. But his case is an example of how things go wrong when the relationship between the church and the state gets misunderstood. There's two ways that people err when it comes to this. So I'll give you the two errors, and we'll finish up with the right way to go, and then we will have the band come back up. One of the ways is what you would call papism. Papism is when the church rules the state. That was the scene in the Holy Roman Empire. 
Pope didn't just rule the church, he ruled an entire political realm. The problem with this, when the church rules the state, is that you're having to go around and get people to convert with a sword. And Sam Waldron says, the weapon given to the civil authority with which to accomplish its unique task is the sword. The fact is that swords are not good weapons for the purpose of molding or ruling men's consciences. Imagine me pastoring this church with a sword who's coaching upward. You know what I mean? Like, you, you can't mold a conscience with a sword. It's not going to work. It'll be a bad upward season. The church's mission to see souls converted into God's kingdom by believing the word of God through the spirit of God. That's the church's mission. To see souls converted into God's kingdom by believing the word of God through the spirit of God. It is not to go throughout the earth gathering conversions with a blade. So papism is one way it goes wrong when the church is ruling the state. We don't want that. The second way that it goes wrong is what's called Erastianism. Erastianism is when the state rules the church. Erastus was a Swiss reformer who lived in the 16th century. He was a medical doctor, by all reports a very good medical doctor, and not a great theologian. He essentially said, listen, the pastors, they're just messengers of the word. They have no real authority. The whole church is in subjection to the state. The pastor would only have authority if the state allows the pastor to have the authority. Therefore, the only authority the church has is given to it by the state. And the problem with, with this view is it's just simply not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Romans 13 teaches. Romans 13 is not about, this is very important for our understanding of this text, it is not about the church as an institution being subject to the governing authorities, but about you as an individual Christian being subject to the governing authorities. It's how it's written. And it's important to keep that in mind. Of all the New Testament passages we've looked at in this series thus far, they have all been about just that. How the individual believer relates to and prays for the state. And so as an alternative to the two extremes of papism and Erastianism, we have our final point this morning, number three. The church and the state are separate authorities with separate origins and separate purposes. They are separate authorities with separate origins and separate purposes. The state is here to restrain evil in the common kingdom of man. That's not the church's job. The church is here to advance the redemptive kingdom of God. That's not the state's job. The state is here to provide a level of physical peace. The church is here to preach peace for the soul. The state has been given a sword to cut people off from the physical land of the living if they commit evil. The church has been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind and loose. Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, meaning the church holds open the door of the redemptive kingdom and says, anybody who repents and believes like Abraham can come in. But the church also closes the door when there is no faith, warning the unbelieving they must repent and trust in Christ. We did it just this morning. I stood up and I said, listen, if you're not a believer, don't take the Lord's Supper. That is a binding that we do, and we believe Jesus has given us the authority to do that. 
warning those that don't take the Lord's Supper because they don't believe that, hey, one day this door shuts forever. You need to repent. All this is church work, not state work. The state has no authority to come in here and tell us what we do with this table. For us as Americans, you're like, yeah, yeah. That was a big deal for a long time. We kind of got used to it. We've been living in this place where the state doesn't mess with all this. A lot of brothers and sisters, as we've talked about already today, do live in a place where the state messes with all this, and they have no right. The state is in place to ensure that the second table of God's law is tended to, that property is not stolen, and people are not murdered, and people are not slandered, and marriages are not destroyed without repercussion. But the church is in place to call the world to the first table of God's law, to worship God, to repent of idols, to revere his name, to find rest in him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the state belongs to the order of nature. We are in the realm of grace. The church belongs to the realm of special grace and the state to common grace. Another way to say that would be to say the church belongs to the redemptive kingdom of Christ. The state belongs to the common kingdom of man. Now here's the practical uh, implication of this. If the church is not subordinate to the state and the state is not subordinate to the church, well then who are they both bowing down to? Well, the answer is God. He is head over all things, and the magistrate is accountable to him. He is the head of the body of the church, and the church is accountable to him. And so the church and the state both must see to their obligations. The state must preserve in the way that God has designed, and the church must multiply in the way that God has designed. And while both must maintain their duties they have been assigned, they also need to stay out of each other's work. The church and the state have to both say, we separate from each other. We don't intrude on each other's business. The church's job is not to change the state. That's not the mission Jesus gave us. The state's job is not to rule the church. It's not the purpose God ordained government for. In light of what's happening in Southern Baptist life, I want to say one more thing. Our religious freedom has its limits. If there's abuse in the church and we've got a matter of civil justice on our hands, like somebody's committed a crime, the church still deals with the authorities because the church has to be godly enough as an institution to recognize that once again, their purpose is not to rule in civil matters. They can execute church discipline in those situations, but if civil justice is at stake, the magistrate must be involved. The band's going to come and I want to tell you a tragic tale as they do. By the way, there's so much more we could say about that relationship between church and state. We don't have time for it today. We need to go ahead and close up. I do recommend to you, if you want to dig further, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Life in Two Kingdoms, his commentary on Romans 13, 350 pages just on one chapter of the Bible. But he goes deep in all this stuff and does a great job. But I want to tell you a tragic tale, and that tale is how the series Alpha ended. Alf is about to go home to Melmac in the finale. His time as a resident alien is almost over. He will finally be with his people again. And just as he's about to be picked up, a government aircraft comes, scares off the aliens, they kidnap Alf, and he's never seen on TV again. And you probably think I'm joking, but that is actually what happened. That's how Alf ended. He's probably suspended somewhere in like a, a tube of goo. He's getting experimented on regularly, right? That's how Alf ends. 
because it was supposed to be a cliffhanger and they never got a fifth season. Terrible ending for our resident alien. Church, that will not be our ending. For the union of dominion and worship will be reinstated when the king priest returns in glory on the clouds. And the Bible tells us what will happen on that day. The temporary governments, the temporary institutions of the common kingdom of man will be gone. The seventh trumpet will sound. And all that will be left is the perfect government of Christ. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Until then, pay your taxes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the state this morning. Sometimes we don't pray that because we're mad at the state. We're angry. We're mad at the person running it because they're failing in their job, because they're failing in their moral obligations to you, because instead of preserving society and providing a peaceful and quiet life for the people who live in it, They harm image bearers, and they do evil. But Lord, your word was written to people who were living under a government that was far more, uh, that, that was exercising far more tyranny than any of us have experienced. And you said to them, pay your taxes. Pay what is owed. And so there's no question that for us, we must be in subjection as an act of worship to you. But Father, don't let us be confused and think The state has more power than you've given them. They don't come in here and tell us how we worship. They don't come in here and tell us who we worship or when we worship. They don't mess with the supper table. They don't mess with the baptism pool, the church membership role, the binding and the loosing. This isn't their business. And so, Father, help us to keep in mind that we have our obligations as the church and that we would see to them in the redemptive kingdom. Your kingdom is not of this world until it is. And until that day, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of the beloved Son, we keep working. And we keep holding open that door and saying, come in, anybody, repent, have the faith of Abraham, be a citizen of this kingdom. And at times we close the door to let people know that one day it will close forever. But let us do our work faithfully as the church, Lord. Souls are at stake. And your glory is at stake. And we care about these things as citizens of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.